Hi, I'm Natalie Pearson. Welcome to SEAC Stories, a podcast by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Leah Genovese, an independent researcher based in Bangkok. Leah lectures part-time at three universities in the Bangkok area, including Tamasat and Supercorn University. Her research interests include French colonial archaeology, South and Southeast Asian megaliths, Iron Age mortuary practices, and cultural heritage and conservation. She's currently working on a critical biography of the life and work of the French archaeologist Madeleine Colani, pioneer of the Plain of Jars and surveyor of 26 sites between 1931 and 1933. Leah was meant to be visiting Australia to present at the Histories of Archaeology Conference in Canberra and was planning to visit the University of Sydney while she was here, but unfortunately that all changed with COVID. However, we are able to join via Zoom and Leah, thank you for making the time to speak with us today. Thank you, Natalie. Today, we're going to be talking about the topic that was the focus of your PhD research, and that is the Plain of Jars in northern Laos. The Plain of Jars was granted UNESCO World Heritage status in July 2019 on the grounds that it is considered to be of outstanding universal value for meeting criterion three, in that it bears a unique or exceptional testimony to a cultural tradition or to a civilization which is living or which has disappeared. Leah, could you start by explaining to us what the Plain of Jars is? Is it as simple as the name suggests, or is there more to this particular megalithic site? The Plain of Jars consists of a little more than 100 archaeological sites. All of these sites are actually not the same in size or quantity or even population of jars. Initially, the name referred to just this flat plain, which you find in Sienkwang province. But that's when our knowledge was so limited of what the Plain of Jazz is, and the name has stuck. Now, since then, we have come to realize that, in fact, the Plain of Jazz extends at least over an area from west to east of 120 kilometers, far more than the initial assessment by Dr. Kolani, which was almost a century ago. So we should make allowances for that. And what sort of things have been found on this plane? What are these so-called jars and, and what else has been found? They're called jars because, in fact, they were created originally from one single rock boulder of one or five different stones, either sandstone, limestone, conglomerate, granite or breccia. The name has stuck as jars because it was initially used by the French, jar. And the name of stack, however, it is not a wholly inappropriate name because, in fact, these rock boulders were scooped out inside. So the interior is empty, if you like. So the name jar remains and it is appropriate, as far as I can tell. Now, in addition to the archaeological sites being populated with jars, and also they're accompanied by a variety of discs, of all shapes and sizes. And in the vicinity of the jars, we have found clay pots with human remains, not a whole skeleton in the clay pots, but if you like token parts of the human body, like human teeth, fragments of skulls, bones, and so on, and also grave goods like iron knives, jewelry, spindle whorls, pendants, and so on. 
And I understand that this is the only megalithic site in mainland Southeast Asia. Uh, where exactly is it located? The plain of just covers two provinces, Sien Quang, which borders Vietnam on the east, and also one province in Luang Prabang province to the west of Sien Quang province. And both of them are in kind of north central Laos. So to date, how many sites have actually been documented? That is a very interesting question, Natalie, because I can tell you that in the last 25 years, we have found more sites than have been discovered in the previous 80 or 90 years. And this is because there has been a lot of research effort really to discover how big is the plain of jars. So to date, there are at least 100 documented sites and the number is growing. I have got an article which is going to be printed very shortly in the Journal of Love Studies, where I report something like a dozen sites I discovered, if you like, almost by accident between Sienkwang and Luang Prabang province. So really the landscape of that province in Luang Prabang province and Sienkwang is literally dotted with archaeological sites that if you put them together, that's the plain of jars as a whole. And how many jars are we talking about? Again, you see, that is a very, very good question, Natalie, because when the plain of jars was awarded the World Heritage status in July 2019, that was in fact one of, if you like, one of the justifications for awarding World Heritage status. Just a little over 2,200 jars have survived. This just covers the sites which are documented. And who is discovering them? Are they being found by uh, people working the land? Are they being found by researchers? Are people setting out to find them or are they being found by coincidence or serendipity? They're being found by a variety of methods. For instance, there is uh, now uh, a team of international archaeologists and one of their PhD students, I believe, has surveyed a few of these sites. I myself, I think either during my PhD or up to now, I probably have discovered 24 new sites. The survey department of Sienkwang province, actually, years ago, they contacted the district principal, you know, the, the, the people who govern the districts in each province. And these individuals were asked to provide details of just sites in their district. And I know that the provincial government has got a long list of sites which still need to be documented. It is, as always, a matter of time, money and resources. I myself find that the villagers, they're an excellent source of information. I would say at least half of the sites I have discovered. It was thanks to having contacts with villagers, normally the Naiban, who is the village chief, if you like. They're an excellent source. And I might add at this stage that sometimes we pay little attention to what the villagers are saying. I think the villagers themselves are a little bit hesitant sometimes to share information with you because they know that in that particular site that they want to show it to you, they only have one, two or three jars. So they think you might not be interested. But I think those little sites are so important really to gain the panorama of what the plane of jars is like. 
why is it that we get 400 jars in one site and then you know 60 kilometers away you only find one jar with maybe maybe one disc you know i think this is going to be crucial for our understanding of how the plane of jars developed so thinking about the jars how old are they do we have a sense of when they date to the now consensus is also in light of these excavations being conducted by this international team we are talking about a window of perhaps 900 to 1000 years from 500 BCE to 500 CE that would be iron age for mainland southeast asia however in the mid 1990s one lao archaeologist mr tong sa Sayabong Kamdi, when he was pursuing a doctorate with the Australian National University. He did a test excavation at one of the biggest sites, which is Site 1, and he found some fragments of human skull, which he had carbon dated, and he came out with a result of 3,000 years. So it is quite possible that some sections of the plane of jars were used for burials long before the jars were put on the ground. Leah, there are quite a few myths around the jars. What are some of the most popular ones and uh, do they hold water, so to speak? <laughs> Very good question. I think for many, many years we have been battling. It's been, if you like, a battle of wills. What were the jars for? And do we want to perpetuate the myth and the mystery because, I mean, there is some kind of allure, isn't there? When you say, oh, the jars are mysterious, we have no idea where they came from, where they're manufactured by giants, and where they're gigantic vessels for rice wine. You know, if you perpetuate the mystery, you might get one or two extra tourists. So, <laughs> you say, no, you, you've got to stop this. The jars are made from one big, single rock boulder. They were not for wine but now their funerary function if you like is undisputed because of what we have found in the vicinity of the jars one other question which has been debated at length is were the jars themselves ever used as stone coffins what was suggested about 15 or 20 years ago by some archaeologists appointed by unesco is that the jars themselves may have been used as stone coffins in the period when a person dies and then you put the body in the jar to decay. After a year or so, when you are left just with bones, you collect the bones and you give them secondary burial. Now that theory no longer holds any water, particularly since now this international team in Laos, they have found two primary burials that means a whole skeleton buried at one of the big sites a site one so those are the first two instances ever of primary burials discovered at the plain of jars up to now it had only been secondary burials you know little clay pots with a few pieces of human remains in there bones teeth or skull fragments so we need to dispel these myths, which although it's some kind of romantic allure, they do not advance science. Archaeologists are constantly battling these theories that 
things couldn't possibly have been made by local people hundreds or thousands of years ago and that the only explanation must be aliens. So it's great to see that being overturned uh, at the Plane of Jars as well. Leah, the next question is about, well, there's a couple of other questions here about how this is one of many megalithic sites in Southeast Asia, um, but you said that this is the only megalithic site in mainland Southeast Asia. Is that, is that correct? Absolutely. So generally the term megalithic means a big stone. Now the jars are only found in northern Laos, in Luang Prabang province and Sien Kuang province. There are megaliths elsewhere, for instance, to the west of Luang Prabang province, we find some standing stones in the province of Luang Nam Tha. Then to the east of the plain of jars in Hua Pan province, we find some big standing stones and they are all undecorated. So those also would be classed as megaliths. And then of course there are Sema stones in Laos, Sema stones in Thailand, but in mainland Southeast Asia, the jars are only found in Northern Laos. Other megalithic sites in Southeast Asia are found in the Jambi Highlands of Sumatra, but they are not shaped like jars. They're really solid cylinders of stone, beautifully decorated. And then of course, you go to Borneo, the two provinces that belong to Malaysia, Sarawak and Sabah, they have got beautiful standing stones, almost never decorated except in one instance. So those are also megaliths, but mainland Southeast Asia, the jars are only found in Laos. The sites, are they all located close to a source of stone, whether it's a quarry or a stone outcrop? How do these concentrations work in relation to the geological features of the landscape? The biggest sites, they are all close to a source of sandstone. And all of those, the biggest sites, one, two, three, fifty-two, the stock of jars is almost 99% made from sandstone. So the crucial fact is the jars have been created where there was stone. Kun district in the south of Sienkwan province, the jar stock is more modest because in Kun, nearly every jar has been shaped from granite. And that has been a challenge. Granite is much, much harder to work with. It's much heavier, but you know, we still find lots of jars in Kun district. And then you go to the east of Sienkwang province, like in Kham district, you find a handful of jars carved from limestone. And uh, in the province also one or two districts have jars carved from conglomerate, which is a very hard stone to work with. So whatever there was stone, these skilled masons went there and created the jars. They were not transported very far, at most 10 or 12 kilometers. But the, the rule is, wherever there was stone, and if there was sandstone in abundance, a jar site was created there. Leah, when were they first reported by Western explorers? At the end of the 19th century, there were explorers or surveyors, all European. They were traversing Laos for a variety of reasons. None of them were to really ascertain the plane of jazz from a scientific point of view. But there was one British surveyor, James McCarthy. 
he was employed by the Siamese government and he was the one who conducted the first survey and produced the first topographical map of Siam. So all of these guys were either, and they were all guys by the way, they were either um, mapping the Mekong to give France a trade advantage, they were conducting surveys, they were explorers, they were on assignments from the French government. And then in 1912-13, there was a French architect who surveyed the religious architecture of Sien Kuang that happened to be jazz. So yes, those early reports were, if you like, accidental. So you, you have these accidental reports from lots of men, by the sounds of it, but the first person to conduct a large-scale survey of the Plain of Jars was actually a woman. This is the person that you're writing the critical biography of. Can you tell me about Madeleine Colani? She was born in the northeast of France, in Alsace, and her career started as a primary school teacher and then she applied for a post in French Indochina and she was accepted. So late in 1898, she left France and arrived in January 1899 because in those days, the sea voyage from France to Indochina took one whole month. So she started teaching and from her new place in French Indochina, she pursued distance learning so she obtained a first degree and then a master's degree and then a doctorate in 1920 in a branch of geology. And in the first 14 years after qualifying, she worked at the Geological Survey of Indochina in Hanoi. And she acquired considerable excavation skills, geological skills, collection of artifacts and so on. And then in 1929, she was hired by another research school in Hanoi, the Ecole Française d'Extreme Orient, or we abbreviate as FAO, and she blossomed <laughs> as a prehistorian. In May 1931, she was posted to the Plain of Jazz, and she worked for the next three years on documenting not only the Plain of Jazz in both provinces, Sien Kuang and Luang Prabang, but also the standing stones of Huapan. And she produced a two volume monograph in 1935 which has recently been translated into English, and it is still a work of reference for us. So Madeleine was working on the Plain of Jars in the 1930s. 90 years later, July 2019, the Plain of Jars is listed on the UNESCO World Heritage Register. What was the campaign like from the Laos perspective, and what was the reception to the the World Heritage listing or the inscription when it was finally announced in Baku? Back in 1992, when our knowledge of the Plain of Jars was rather limited, Laos had submitted what is known as a tentative listing, where a country makes known its intention to eventually submit a formal dossier seeking World Heritage status for a monument or a site on the territory. So originally, that tentative listing had two criteria, not one. But then in February 2018, the Lao government submitted an application just for criterion three, which was accepted. It has really been a series of building blocks, which has brought us to where we are now. And um, 
the campaign was uh, very good sustained. There were one or two setbacks. The technical inspection by the ECOMOS team was due to take place in 2019, but totally out of the blue and unexpectedly. The area of Xinquang province where the technical evaluation was supposed to take place, that area was flooded. Now, the jars were intact, but if you like, the buffer zone around the jars was flooded. So the, the ECOMOS team, mindful of what had been written in the application, said, hang on, you told me that the plane of jars is not subject to flooding, and yet a technical visit has had to be postponed. So that, in fact, has led to something like very stringent measures. The province is going to get in touch with disaster prevention team in Japan, so in a way, it's been good to find out because that is going to strengthen the protection for the jars. And there's a big financial obligation on the government to protect and preserve the site once it has received World Heritage inscription. And you've mentioned one of the threats, this flooding that occurred. Usually following a World Heritage listing, there is an increase in tourist numbers. Once tourists are able to visit the site again, once COVID is over, what impact might those tourist numbers have on the site? And indeed, is it safe for them to visit? Yes, it is absolutely safe for visit because all of the sites, the 11 sites which have been inscribed as World Heritage Monuments, they are all decontaminated of the remnants of war activities we call UXO and exploded ordinances. Now, where the jars are located, that is the site. And then there is a buffer zone, if you like, which surrounds the site. And the decontamination of the buffer zones is ongoing and it's almost complete. If I should have been completed by the end of 2019, so it is perfectly safe to visit the inscribed sites, the 11 sites, but please always follow instructions at the site. Hopefully all the tourists will be mindful that they're looking at something which is quite ancient and fragile because the majority of those stones, those jars, are from sandstone, which is easily impacted. So please be mindful, please take care, and please treat them with the respect that they deserve. And I think that's a really good point, because it's not just about whether the sites are safe for tourists to visit, but in fact, you know, equally importantly, what threat is posed to the site by the, the tourists coming in. So thank you for reiterating that. Leah, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us about this new World Heritage Site in Southeast Asia and for sharing your really interesting research with us. And best of luck with the writing of the biography of Madeleine Colani. Thank you to you, Natalie, for inviting me. And it's been a pleasure to share my knowledge with your audience. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. For more podcasts like this, Look up Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at soundcloud.com.